So what we've done over the last two lectures is we've been looking at work on its kind of deep substructure level. Tonight's lecture, I'm going to turn the corner, and there's actually two parts to what I'm going to do tonight. First, I'm going to identify three basic characteristics of work when you look at work from, from a Christian perspective, and then I'm going to talk, offer three practical applications um, that I think make a difference for what you do tomorrow when you show up for your job. All right. So starting out, three basic characteristics of work according to the Christian perspective. Um, Number one, we were made for work. Now, like I've done in the last two lectures, in order to show how this comes out of the Christian approach, I want to just remind you of, of something at the beginning of the Christian scriptures. It's in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 28. Right after the account of God making humans, God says to these humans, subdue the earth, have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, I dealt a lot with that in the first two um, times here together, that we are responsible to use our powers and abilities to work. That's what it will take to create and cultivate, to develop and reshape the world we find before us. The whole idea is that in our work, we take the world that's given to us and we change it, we shape it, we make something of it. And then in the next chapter of the Bible, we see that God takes these humans and he puts them in the Garden of Eden in order to work it and to keep it. A lot going on there. But part of what we can draw out of the first two chapters of the Bible is that humans were created for the purpose of work. Now, that's fairly, that's contrary to the prevailing views of work in America. In America, most people have a view of work that they didn't necessarily choose but they adopted based on little comments their moms and dads made while they were growing up. And most people in America, their view of work falls into one of two basic categories that I've found it helpful to summarize them by their patron saints, Sigmund Freud and Karl Marx. Now, the Freudian approach to work is at play when a person tolerates work as they seek fulfillment off the job. This is working for the weekend kind of approach. In other words, this is the view at work, whether you've ever heard of Sigmund Freud or not. This is the view that we, we work in order to make a living. And work is good because it makes other things possible. I get a paycheck, and with that paycheck, I get the pleasures of life, whatever those are for you. And they can range, you know, in lots of ways, from vacations to ski boats to an upgraded house or to to whatever fits in this category for you. Now, that's the Freudian approach to work, and this is rough and ready. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not an expert on Freud. The, The Marxist approach to work is the opposite. 
In the Marxist approach to work, I'm not seeking fulfillment off the job. I'm seeking fulfillment on the job. This is when you work to get recognition from your peers and your superiors, and you're so hooked on this stimulation that you can hardly stop working. You can't think of anything else you'd rather do, and retirement for you is a form of death. And many people who retire after a life of this do die. And if it wasn't for enforced relaxation like weekends, this kind of person would burn out after only a few years. Now, the Christian view of work is entirely different from these prevailing approaches in our culture today. From the Christian perspective, humans were made in order to work. Now, granted, this sounds a lot like the Marxist approach, where we seek fulfillment on the job, but there's a fundamental difference, and it's the difference that really helps us understand the uniqueness of the Christian approach. This brings me to the second characteristic of work that's basic to the Christian perspective. The purpose of work is to serve God and to help your neighbor. We were made to work, and therefore work does bring us a measure of satisfaction and fulfillment. But in the Christian view, the purpose of, not, of work is not fulfillment. See, that's the Marxist view. The Christian view of work is not that that's how you get personal satisfaction. Instead, in the Christian view, the purpose of work, it's not fulfillment, it's not advancement, it's not satisfaction, it's not to give you the funds to really live at another time, on the weekends. The Christian purpose of work is to serve God and to serve your neighbor, to help your neighbor. Now, let me break these two things down. To serve God. Through our work, according to the Christian view, we participate with God in His creative work in our world. When we work, we fulfill the command of God to subdue and to have dominion, and we reflect the very action of the Creator of the universe. Now, this is what I focused on in the first two weeks, that when a baker bakes bread or when a musician writes beautiful music, That is how God provides food and provides music. When a leader of a business uses his or her influence to sway the business away from making ethically dubious decisions or ecologically dangerous decisions, then when a lawyer fights for true justice, that person is joining up with God In God's work of restraining and holding back evil. And whenever you find yourself laboring for hope amid the rubble, you're joining with God in his renewing work. Now, I developed that last week in last week's lecture. According to the Christian view, this is a fundamental part of work. But it's the second aspect of work, the second purpose of work that I want to spend a moment developing. That the purpose of work is to not only serve God, but it's to serve your neighbor. There's a passage, there's a sentence in the second half of the Christian scriptures, what Christians call the New Testament. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to Christians who lived in the community of Ephesus. And in that letter, he he writes this sentence. 
Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Now deep in this verse, we see that work is a form of mutual service. You see, the habit of thinking about work as something that you do in order to make money is so ingrained that I think most of us can scarcely imagine how revolutionary it is to say that is not the purpose of work. That work is for the gracious service of our neighbor. Work is not merely a means for my own advancement. Now clearly, (coughs) in this sentence... Part of the purpose of work is so that my own needs are provided for. Now that's, that's where the money comes in. But that's not all there is. Work is, is our contribution to the good of the community. So here's a good definition of work that I think catches the Christian perspective. Work is the genuine and gracious service of God and others through the responsible use of your talents and abilities. To unpack this a little further, let's take it from another angle. The Christian confession is that God is all-powerful. And that he created us intentionally. And that he could have created us as self-sufficient individuals. If he's all-powerful, it is within his ability to make humans self-sufficient. Each one of us could inhabit our own little solitary universe. But the reality that we live in is that God did not create us to to be able to survive on our own. He intended us to live in a community of love and mutual service. None of us is sufficient unto ourselves. There's not a single human being that can meet even basic bodily needs without the efforts of others. We depend upon each other. And this is a key indicator of God's intent that human beings should live in a society. And get this, our society is bound up by two things, common needs And mutual service. You see, it's our lack of self-sufficiency that draws us together into an interdependent society. Now, let's take it a step further. We were all created with the same basic needs. We are not all created with the same abilities. Fundamentally speaking, all humans are the same at the need level, but different when it comes to abilities. There are many things I cannot do as well as Josh can do, or Alec can do, or Mike can do. Not all of us would make good farmers. Not all of us could make good theoretical physicists. Not all of us could make good Finnish carpenters. We all have different gifts and abilities and desires. In the words of one Christian theologian, human life is to be lived out in a society 
of mutual service and support. Each member contributing according to his specific talents, receiving according to his needs. So part of the Christian view of work is that our talents and abilities were not given to us in order to heap up fame and fortune for ourselves. Rather, they're to be exercised for the common good. Now, I know you could take that in a Marxist direction. I'm not a Marxist. But I'm trying to show that there's there's a truth in this kind of Marxist approach that I'm trying to affirm without affirming some other things. Now, to summarize the second characteristic of the Christian perspective on work, here's a quote from the document Guardium et Spes, which is a Latin title. It's, It's actually one of the most influential documents of the Catholic Church in the last 50 years. The English translation of the title is something like Joy and Hope. And the document is basically a Roman Catholic overview of the Catholic Church's perspective on the relationship of humanity and society, and it's specifically hedging itself against Marxism. Listen to this quote from this document. Man was created in God's image. When men and women provide for themselves and their families in such a way as to be of service to the community as well as their families... They can rightly look upon their work as a prolongation of the work of the creator, a service to their fellow man, and their personal contribution to the fulfillment and history of the divine plan. Number three. The third basic characteristic of the Christian view of work is that no legitimate job is more valuable than another legitimate job. All legitimate work matters equally. Martin Luther once said, God and the angels smile when a man changes a diaper. William Tyndale said, if our desire is to please God, he's writing um, many centuries ago, pouring water, washing dishes, cobbling shoes, and preaching the word, it's all the same. And he was a preacher. William Perkins, another preacher, said, the action of a shepherd in keeping sheep is as good a work before God as is the action of a judge in giving sentence or a magistrate in ruling or a minister in preaching. This is a fundamental Christian view of work. All work, provided it's legitimate, and there's many illegitimate jobs in our community today. All work, provided it contributes to the common good, possesses an intrinsic dignity, no matter how low it appears in outward appearance. The God's intent is for a human being to be employed in mutual service. Again, to quote the Protestant theologian Martin Luther, it looks like a good thing when a monk renounces everything and goes into a cloister, carries on a life of asceticism, fasts, watches, prays. On the other hand, it looks like a small thing when a maid cooks and cleans and does other housework. But because God's command is there... Even such a small work must be praised as a service of God, far surpassing the holiness and asceticism of all monks and nuns. Now, Luther was fighting in a day where there was a a commonly accepted view of a two-tier system. People working for the church had a far more valuable job 
than people who didn't. Now what's interesting is that that medieval Roman Catholic Church, it had developed this two-tiered system of work where religious work was more important than secular work. And so these Protestant theologians at that time really pushed back on it. And they were right to do so. In fact, in 1981, Pope John Paul II wrote the papal encyclical on human work. And he follows the position of the reformers. And he pushes against the medieval Catholic view. Today, there's broad agreement among Catholics and Protestants that... Religious work is no better and no more valuable than secular work. What's interesting, though, is that while we don't live um, in a society where very many people think the job of a pastor is more valuable than the job of, of a doctor or a teacher, we do live in a society with a two-tier system. It's just a different two-tier system. Our two-tier system says the more money you can generate, the more valuable your work is. If the Reformation was occurring today, that would be the pushback. All legitimate work matters equally to God. Now, what I'm going to do is shift gears, and for the remainder of the lecture, I'm going to identify three practical applications of the Christian perspective on work, three concrete steps that you can take in your own work if you would like to work like a Christian. But you don't have to. Number one, Learn to offer yourself to God through the medium of your work. Your job is God's invitation for you to join Him in His work. So the Christian view is that in creating us for the purpose of work, God is calling us to Himself through our work. He's inviting us into communion with him as co-workers in his vineyard of his creation. God is at work in this world, shaping, organizing, cultivating, forming, ordering, maintaining. And when we work, we're working with God. Again, Martin Luther is so helpful here. He said, God milks the cows with the hands of the milkmaids. And he's not being allegorical. He's saying that his view is that God actually cares for the cattle. And this is the way he milks the cattle. Whatever your job, no matter how mundane and underappreciated, you've got to learn how to connect with God through your job. It's so important to learn to see the relationship between the mundane task of our daily jobs and the work of God in this world. And I think this is where a lot of us get off base. We can imagine how the heroic moments of our job connect up with God, but most work is not mostly heroic, even for heroes. (laughs) I mean, you think about the Lone Ranger, right? He still had a lot of mundane work to do. It just doesn't make for good TV. I think one of the reasons it's so difficult for us is because we live in a culture that is seduced by big stuff. I like how the Episcopal priest Robert Farrar Capon puts it. Only miracle is plain. It is the ordinary that groans with the unutterable weight of glory. Unfortunately, we live in an age which is too little impressed by the small 
and too easily intimidated by the great. Creation is vast in every direction. It is as hugely small as it is large. And science is learning this. You can go as big in the microscopic as you can in the telescopic. So in order to learn to offer yourself to God through the medium of your work, I think the biggest challenge is to learn the relationship of your mundane task, whatever they are for your job, and the work of God in the universe. So when I was working on my PhD, we lived in England. My office was in the basement of our house. In England, I didn't know this before moving there, but England is like further north than Nova Scotia. So that means in the winter it gets dark like at 9 in the morning. (laughs) Or, no, actually it gets dark like around 3.30 or so, but it doesn't get light until around 9 or 9.30. It's, It's crazy. So I'm working in this dark basement. In the winter I've got this heater right beside me because I'm chattering, you know. And so when you do a PhD in England, it's all in the humanities, it's all research-based. So basically for my PhD, it was four years of research and writing. So 40 hours a week for, actually it was more, five years, I'm writing. And that was really difficult at times. You know, my, not my first day trying to translate this pesky little preposition in ancient Hebrew. Not the second day, but when I'm on the 15th day of one dang little preposition down in this dank basement where where I've got one of those half windows, you know, that half of it is like people's feet walking by. As I'm looking up, you know, I felt like um, in Les Miserables when... when, um, no, it's in the Hunchback of Notre Dame when Esmeralda, you remember she's, she's in that um, prison cell and she can see all this stuff going on. A friend of mine came to me and said, Aubrey, I know this is hard, you know, in the third year, in the fourth year. But you've got to realize that when you're in your basement all alone and bored out of your gourd, that the angel of the Lord is over your shoulder. And he's saying, go, go. You are working with God. And so I would say to you, when you're washing yet another load of laundry, or cleaning dishes, or picking kids up from school, or filling out reports, or preparing a quote, that the angel of the Lord is over your shoulder. And he's saying, go, go. And when you're a student, and you're in history, you wouldn't be bored in history. I don't know, science or something, where it's really boring. (laughs) That is your job. And when it's midnight and you're bored and you're studying and you can't go on, the angel is there saying, go, go. This is your work with God in his world. Now, I said you've got to learn how to see that because it's really hard to see. Second thing for a Christian view of work is to learn to work for shalom through your job. Shalom, it's a Hebrew word from the Old Testament that draws together the concepts of peace, justice, and delight. Shalom is a life of flourishing and prospering. To enjoy living rightly before God. To enjoy living rightly in God's creation. To enjoy living rightly with your fellow human. This is shalom. 
Shalom is a life of flourishing and prospering. It's a life of luxuriant living. One theologian puts it this way, Shalom is the webbing together of God, humans, and creation, and justice, fulfillment, and delight. Listen to this remarkable portion of, of Christian scripture. It's the book of Isaiah, chapter 28. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat and rose and barley in its proper place, and a mirror as the border? Now that's common Middle East agricultural Wisdom. But here's my question for you. How did the Middle Eastern farmer 2,500 years ago know that? How did he know how to plow when he was working with cumin or, or barley or wheat? How does a farmer in Elkton know when to plant? What crops will work and how to treat these crops? Where does a farmer learn how to farm? In every civilization, it's the same. From other farmers. From his dad and his granddad and his neighbor. Farming knowledge is culturally accumulated knowledge. But listen to the next sentence from Isaiah. For the farmer is rightly instructed, God teaches him. Now Isaiah is making a profound point. He's saying that all true wisdom for how to do any vocation, no matter the direct teacher, the real teacher is God. He keeps going. Dill is not, thre- is not threshed with a threshing sledge. Now, this was written to Middle Eastern farmers. They were all going, of course not. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a... And then all the farmers would have said, oh, with a stick, with a rod. Does anyone crush grain for his bread? No. He does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This, talking about this farming knowledge, listen to what Isaiah says comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Now, either Isaiah is saying that God shows up for dinner at the farmer's house, tells the farmer to take out a notepad, and gives him rules. Or he's saying, Culturally accumulated knowledge is the way God gets knowledge into our hands. How did they figure this stuff out? After centuries and decades of farming that land, they had heard God's wisdom. Now what Isaiah is saying is that every vocation has a proper way of working. Every vocation, like every piece of wood, has a grain. It's there. There is a grain to your job. And that grain is God's wisdom. 
You must discover it, work with it, not against it. In the words of the fascinating farmer Wendell Berry, The creation is a living work in which every creature must participate by its own nature and by the nature of the world. We humans, by our particular nature, must participate for better or worse. And this is our choice to make. Will we choose to participate by working in accordance with the world's originating principles? That's what I call the grain of the universe. In recognition of its inherent goodness and its maker's approval of it? In gratitude for our membership in it? Or will we participate by destroying it in accordance with our always tottering, never resting, self-justifications and selfish desires? How are you going to do your job? There's two ways to do it. Another way of saying this is to say that you need to be very good at your job. If God calls you to business, to interior design, to finance or art, to homemaking or medicine, to education or farming, you must master the accumulated knowledge in your field and discern what of it is is wise and what of it is foolish. You must discern of that knowledge which is the grain of the universe. Which makes your sphere well. And when you do this, you are learning from God himself. You are partnering with God. As a worker, you must learn to see what is cutting against God's grain and what is working with God's grain in your job in your industry. And I've spent the last two weeks pointing out how all of the spheres of life matter to God. You must work to heal the brokenness in your vocation. And every vocation is a mixture of wisdom and foolishness. You must work to bring your industry, your job, your company into line with the grain of the universe. All of cultural life should reflect its inherent design. God is not only the Lord of the soul, He's also the ruler of the body. He's not only the Lord of heaven, He's also the Lord of earth. And your work is how you participate in the work of God. You need to learn to work in ways that are oriented toward the shalom of the world. What if if the banking industry had committed itself to this view of work. That there's a way of doing banking that contributes to the shalom of a society and that the goal of banking is serving God and neighbor, not personal enrichment. Just like Chernobyl. A friend of mine works in um, nuclear engineering. He's a one of the directors of a nuclear plant in South Texas. As you can imagine, they spent lots of time studying Chernobyl. And he said it's very clear the corners that were cut. You know why? Because of the arms race. See, the arms race put pressures on the nuclear plant that allowed something to get into the driver's seat where they broke the, the rules of nuclear engineering. 
Just like he put rules into the nature of atomic reality. And when we bend and break and take shortcuts around those rules, there will be a meltdown. It's the same in the banking system. It's the same in the university system. It's the same in the building industry. Your job as a worker is to do justice to what is demanded at the place you occupy. This brings us to a third way that the Christian view of work matters for what you do tomorrow. Dorothy Sayers once compared work to golf. For some of you, that means it's endlessly frustrating and not worth it. Sayers said, when you're teeing off, if you take your eyes off the ball, you can't make a good drive. In the same way, when you go to work, if you are not focused on your work, you will not do good work. And work that is not good serves neither God nor the community. It only serves mammon. Now this shows up in all sorts of ways in our society, but I think the main way it shows up is in mediocre work. Work that just gets by, just the minimum. I'm here for the paycheck. If your job is a legitimate job, then mediocre work, no matter what your job is, is the only form of non-Christian work. Even if you're the nicest, most religious person in your office, if you're mediocre at your work, your work is non-Christian. This is the third way to apply a Christian view of work to your day tomorrow. Learn to see that your first duty at work is to your work. Remember, in the very first lecture, I said when the church talks about work in America today, it typically talks about your ethics at work or evangelism at work. And the deep problem with that approach is it fails to deal with the main thing, which is your work. Sayers gives another great illustration. The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter has always been limited to challenging him. Don't be drunk. Don't be disorderly in your time off and come to church on Sundays. Sayers writes, but what the church should be telling the carpenter is this. The very first demand of Christ for a carpenter is to make good tables. Now by all means, go to church and don't get drunk. But what use is all of that if the very center of your life and occupation is insulting God with bad carpentry? And then with a wonderful understanding of Scripture, Sayers writes, No crooked table legs or ill-fitting drawers ever came out of the carpenter's shop at Nazareth. If they did, could anyone have believed that they were made by the same hand that made heaven and earth? Morality and evangelism never compensate for bad work. As if that weren't enough, Dorothy Sayers goes on, In the buildings of the church and in its art and music, in its hymns and prayers, the sermons and the little books of devotion, the church tolerates good intentions and excuses ugly, pretentious, tawdry, twaddling, insincere, and insipid work that is so bad it shocks and horrifies any decent artist. And why? 
Because the church has lost all sense of the fact that the living and eternal truth is expressed in work only in so far as that product is true to itself, to its standards and its techniques. The church has forgotten that the, sec- the secular vocation is sacred. The church has forgotten that a building must be good architecture before it can ever be a good church building. That a painting must be well painted before it can be a good Christian painting. That work must be good work before it can call itself God's work. All of this to say, the only Christian work, the only Christian music, the only Christian art, the only Christian teaching, the only Christian mothering, the only Christian work is good work well done. All other work is non-Christian. Now I'll conclude by wrapping all of this up with a quote from the best, this best-selling analysis of American society, Habits of the Heart. Do any of you remember this? Written back, I think, in the mid to late 80s by Robert Bella and his associates. Near the end of the book, they claim that the transformation of our society, the transformation our society so deeply needs, is dependent, among other things, upon a profound change in the meaning of work. The problem, according to Bella, is that work in, Amer- in America has been too deeply influenced by the spirit of modern individualism. A spirit which promotes the idea of work as a means of private advancement rather than public contribution. And if this approach to work is allowed to have full sway in American life, Bella writes, we will see the rending of our society and the eroding of our democratic institutions. Do you see, was it JFK asked not what your country can do for you? But what you can do for your country? Do you see how he was working out of a deep Catholic worldview when he said that? I agree with Bella and I propose to you that the Christian view of work is a fruitful stream that can profoundly contribute to the flourishing of the valley. And with that, I will end. And we'll open it up for questions.